According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, we're going to look, sort of, at the third missionary journey. And uh, we'll see how Luke records it. And uh, we'll see if perhaps we might do a better job than uh, the traditional uh, labels have been at uh, identifying missionary journeys one, two, three, and four, and five, and <laughs> however many more we want to label, and uh, identify them for what they are. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, asking God to set aside distractions and to humble us under the authority of His truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you once again, thankful for the blessing we have to be here this morning. And Father, calling upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding, to uh, teach us all things, even the deep things of God. Father, open our eyes to these truths. Uh, Help us to see with fresh eyes what the Scripture says and what it doesn't say. Help us to compare Scripture to Scripture, Father, which is the essence of rightly dividing the word of truth. And uh, so, Father, as we study to show ourselves approved, remind us that it's not about what we know, but uh, through what we know, then, how we live, how we serve, and what we do, Father. We are workmen, needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I thank you for all of these things. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. All right, uh, this uh, study has really taken off, and I'm enjoying it greatly. I don't know if I'm, maybe I'm the only one, but it's, it's really going longer than I thought it was going to be. I thought maybe two or three classes and we'd be finished, but it's, I, I'm enjoying it. I hope everyone's enjoying it. We're learning a lot. We're being edified by the process. Uh, really, it came down to observing things that Luke left out. And so the Luke left outs, right, what he omitted and uh, he omitted for whatever reason. Maybe, uh, and we discussed this last night, did he omit it because he just didn't know it? He was unaware of it. He wasn't with them at the time. Uh, as we track the, the we portions of the book of Acts, we realize that whenever the author is, is talking about we did this, we did that, we did whatever else, that Luke is with them at the time, that he includes himself in the events that take place. And so the we portions of the book of Acts are, are vital in that regard. If you're outside of that range, if you're in the, the they portion of the book of Acts, you know, Paul did this, they did that. Uh, if you're in that third person narrative, then Luke wasn't there. And Luke may not have been aware of all the, the total details of everything that took place. Um, and whether he was aware of it or not, I think the purpose for writing the book of, of Luke, the purpose for writing the book of Acts, uh, the role of Theophilus, uh, whatever that may have been, the function for Luke and Acts being presented to a high Roman official. Uh, you don't get the title most excellent, uh, you know, for nothing. The, the title most excellent Theophilus applies to a, a significant Roman person. And uh, to whatever role Luke and Acts had in Paul's trial or Paul's imprisonment or Paul's defense, uh, I think it's, it's, uh, that also has to be considered when we, when we ask ourselves, why were the details of Gallio put in and, and his role as the proconsul of, of Corinth, and why were the details of Ephesus left out? Why was the proconsul of Ephesus not mentioned? In, uh, by name, see, uh, given the, the history and the politics and the current events of what was happening there. These are all, I think, significant not only for the book of Acts itself, but also for everything that follows in Paul's writings, for the prison epistles most of all. And so that's what we're talking about. We're talking about details that we find in Paul's writings. You know, when he says that he was shipwrecked three times, wow, that's an admission. Paul made an admission and it's omitted by Luke. Luke doesn't talk about any of those because the, uh, when Paul said he'd been shipwrecked three times, he said that before the shipwreck we read about in Luke 27, all right? So when Luke finally gets around to recording a shipwreck, uh, that's at least the fourth time then that Paul had been shipwrecked and, uh, and circumstances there. Or the times that he was beaten, the times that he was scourged, the time that he was thrown to the lions. Luke doesn't record any of those. And, uh, and these omissions then become, I think, significant for us to pinpoint different events and where they relate to Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and, uh, and Philemon. 
So uh, by the time I think we're done with this study, we're going to be on solid footing to, to pinpoint the, the prison epistles for where they were truly written, not where the tradition has had them written, I think, all this time. All right. So uh, for this, uh, we return to where we left off last Wednesday, and that would be in Acts chapter 20. And this would be uh, the departure from Ephesus. After the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and uh, sent for them. He's not free to travel to them, but he sends for them. They come to him wherever he's been hiding, all right, nearby town, wherever. He's, uh, he's out of the picture. They couldn't find him in chapter 19. They, they arrested two of his partners. They couldn't find him. And he was kept out of the, uh, the marketplace there. He wanted to go in and, and defend things, and they kept him out of that. And so uh, after the uproar had ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and when Paul had exhorted them and taken his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. And so this really, I view this as the, as the launch for the third missionary journey. If, if we're going to define a missionary journey as a circuit, if we're going to define it as a loop, as we're going to, if we're going to define it as travels Paul makes on a circuit basis whereby he begins and he concludes in the same uh, uh, headquarters, then we have to start the third missionary journey there. The content of chapter 19 was not a missionary journey. It was uh, a headquarters that he set up in Ephesus. It was a training ministry that he set up in Ephesus. And any short-term missionary work that might have been done could have been done. uh, We know Paul made a a short trip to Corinth. We know that others made short trips. Timothy and Titus and Erastus made short trips. We know that a church was founded in Colossae, but not by Paul. All right. Uh, We're going to find out, well, who did that and who, who founded that church and why? And uh, we'll see the role of Ephesus in becoming the epicenter for these things. And I think that becomes uh, vital as well. So uh, let me just put up some pictures here again to kind of sometimes if you're, if you're visual like I am, uh, it helps to just look at maps, <laughs> look at stuff. But here's the first missionary journey, right? And think of it as a circuit. Think of it as, uh, you know, it opens in, in Antioch and it closes in Antioch. And so we're dealing with uh, with a, a missionary journey. Uh, Antioch is the headquarters, right? We call it lo- the log base, the logistical base uh, from which the, the journey is, is launched. It's funded, it's prayed for, it's uh, supported. And uh, when they're done, that's where they return to to give their report. And of course, this was Paul and Barnabas together uh, to Cyprus, across the island of Cyprus, and then up to Perga, and then all through the Galatian region. They did a complete loop there, back to uh, Perga again, and then returning to Antioch. And so you have a a loop in the sense of the first missionary journey. Likewise, the second missionary journey, again, Antioch is the starting point. Antioch is the ending point. I should have highlighted Antioch, right? And uh, we got a big loop. And it opens in Antioch. It closes in Antioch. Antioch is the headquarters. Antioch is where the spiritual support comes from, where the prayer is being offered, where the funding is being raised, where the blessings uh, are, are taking place there. Remember, Antioch was the center for, the, for Gentile evangelism. And we, we dealt with that in chapter 13 and beyond. All right, and so that's the pattern there. When we get to the third missionary journey, or what's usually labeled the third missionary journey, it, uh, as it's described and as it's typically taught, it's not a closed loop. It's, uh, it begins in Antioch and ends in Jerusalem, and he's under arrest, and he sails off to Rome. Um, I would propose, I would uh, submit a theory that um, we're, we're using a bit of a misnomer with respect to the third missionary journey, that this leg here, we should not consider part of the third missionary journey. We should just simply identify this as the relocation of the logistical base, that he's relocating from Antioch to Ephesus and establishing Ephesus as a base of operations. In other words, Ephesus is becoming the new Antioch. Ephesus is going to become the home base by which future missionary journeys can, can proceed by which a training ministry can take place, where Bible teachers can be taking place. Remember how Antioch was first described? Look at, uh, just hold your finger here and look back at Acts 13, and look at this description. 
There were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And, and you see a great wealth of Bible teachers there. You see a cadre of, uh, of elders and teachers and, and, and so forth. And, and so you see, what does it take for a local church then to become a missionary sending agency. <laughs> you know, it takes a lot of logistical support. You've got to have a solid foundation of Bible teaching right there at the home base. And that's what Antioch was. And I believe that's what Ephesus became. And it took, uh, in Antioch, it took a full year of Barnabas and Paul teaching them. That they were with them for a full year establishing them in Antioch until they reached the point that they could become a sending organization. Well, in Ephesus, it took two years. He, he, he reasoned daily with them for two years in the school of Tyrannus. And he, again, he's training teachers. And he's got, and we're going to see the listing of names comparable to what we just read there in Acts 13. All right? Not recorded by Luke necessarily, but recorded by Paul in, uh, we're going to see in Romans, we're going to see in uh, 2 Corinthians, we're going to see the names of the, the fellow workers as he lists them. So I would take off that first leg and, and just remove it from the, from the third missionary journey. Also, the time that they spend there. Remove that from the third missionary journey. It's like the time that Paul and Barnabas spent in Antioch building up that nucleus of teachers, building up that local church. That was building a lampstand. That was not a missionary journey. And I think that the three years that Paul spent here, the two years plus that he spent here in, uh, in Ephesus was similar, was comparable. The analogy carries across. From Antioch to Ephesus. Likewise, um, I would this arrow here, which is very light, hard to see on the screen, better on this screen. Um, in any event, this leg here, I think, take that off of the missionary journey. That wasn't a missionary journey. Uh, take that leg off, and uh, and uh, if you remove those two legs, what do you end up with? You end up with a circuit from Ephesus back to Ephesus again on the commencement of the journey, on the conclusion of the journey, he reports back, see? And I think you have something very comparable to both the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. So maybe if we, if we're, if we have more precision on our terms with, uh, with these things, we might accurately label the missionary journeys in, uh, in a better way. Now, um, returning then to Acts uh, chapter 20, what I'm calling the Ephesian ejection, um, he did leave Ephesus under circumstances slightly different than how he had originally designed, that he had put together a designed departure. Uh, we, we see those in verses 21 and 22 of, uh, of Acts 19. Um, after these things were finished, Paul purposed in, his, in the spirit to go to Jerusalem after he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And so he has a planned departure from Ephesus. And having sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. And so that was the planned departure. And then what follows for the rest of chapter 19 was the unplanned, <laughs> the circumstances that then came about with respect to uh, this uh, no small disturbance and, uh, and Demetrius here. You have a question? He was three months in Greece, correct? An unknown period of time, because, and we're going to talk about that this morning. Yeah, the bulk of what we're going to talk about this morning is this uh, third missionary journey that tends to be the most popular uh, if you read Pauline literature um, and, and yet because it's focused on Ephesus, it's focused on what really is not a missionary journey. Uh, the, where he is traveling we only get secondhand uh, glimpses and that's what we're going to see here uh, presently. So there's the planned departure uh, back in verses 21 and 22 where he uh, sent Timothy and Erastus and he himself stayed in Asia for a while. I think uh, he was continually struggling about uh, Titus's absence. I think uh, he was already composing early drafts and early chapters of 2 Corinthians uh, while he was waiting for, for uh, Titus to return from Corinth. I think that there were some other 
aspects going on. When he wrote 1 Corinthians, he said that he was going to remain in, uh, in, in Ephesus through Pentecost because there was a wide door that was open for him and there were many adversaries. And uh, these are many of the clues that we pick up on as we, uh, as we look at this. All right. So now in Acts chapter 20, let's, let's continue what we've been doing. Let's see what's said and let's see what's not said. So uh, he, taking his leave of them, he left to go to Macedonia. Verse 2, when he had gone through those districts. <laughs> okay, is Macedonia those districts? <laughs> Macedonia is a district, a province, a location, but this appears to be plural. Macedonia is only one, uh, but those districts are plural. And had given them much exhortation. Okay. Like what? <laughs> okay. What kind of exhortation? Who, where, when, why, how? Uh, tell me more. Tell me more. Well, they don't. Luke passes by. He came to Greece. Oh. Okay. And so, again, back to, uh, back to what we're talking about here. Um, he sails, he comes across here to Macedonia. Macedonia's north, and then Greece would be down here, okay? Sometimes they're all lumped together and called Greece, but in, in the first century, in, in this time, this is a Macedonian province, and this is the lower province of, uh, of Achaia, all right? And so um, after he had gone through this region, so we get one verse, and then he comes to Greece. That's all we're told. But uh, there's more to the story. So uh, after Luke narrates the briefest of sketches for Paul's departure from Ephesus, his second visit to Macedonia, uh, along with those districts and much exhortation. And that's all we know. That's all that we know. If we were limited to the book of Acts, we would uh, we'd barely even think about this ever again. We'd think, okay, big deal. Well, we got some clues. We got some clues. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, we can get a couple of them here. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And remember, <laughs> he might have had some rough drafts. He might have had some early chapters written. He may have had maybe the first few chapters written, but he's still waiting to, to hear from Titus. And it's not until he finally meets Titus, which, by the way, happens in Macedonia. He finally meets Titus, and then he's relieved of so much that he finishes writing the rest of, of the book of 2 Corinthians. And so uh, we have to deal with these details. All right, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 12 and 13. And, and in this uh, chapter 2, we also have some of the clues we mentioned on Wednesday, the sorrowful visit. Verse 1 says, I determined this for my own sake. I would not come to you in sorrow again. And we realize that, he, that Paul has been to Corinth twice. Once that Luke writes about in, in, Luke, in Acts 18, and then a second time that Luke never talks about. Luke never records that sorrowful visit, which we understand to be part of that, that short-term missionary work that was launched out of Ephesus during the three years in Ephesus. But I would come to you in sorrow again. And, and aspects there. We get down to verses 12 and 13. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord... I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. These are details that are not recorded in Acts. They're not recorded as far as the turmoil Paul was going through and the absence of Titus. In fact, Titus is, is uh, mentioned nine times in 2 Corinthians. You want to know how many times he shows up in the book of Acts? None. It's like the number of times Luke shows up in the book of Acts. Luke keeps himself anonymous. The name doesn't show up. And if it weren't for the mysterious we passages that pop up in those places, uh, we'd have to leave Luke out of the book of Acts also. So uh, um, those details are missing. The, the details here in Troas. What else might have happened in Troas? All right, well, someone's going to die in Troas and fall out of a window, but uh, he'll get brought back, and so we're cool on that. And that's later, though. That's not on this time through Troas. Troas, there was a lot of coming and going through Troas. And uh, there was even an occasion where he left his cloak and he left his books and he left his parchments. And, and uh, why is Paul so forgetful? <laughs> you know, but maybe Paul is actually smart in stashing these things in different places where they're hidden away because he stashes himself in a lot of places where he's hidden away, where he's not eligible to be arrested, where the authorities don't know where he is. 
and then where his writings can be stashed away and copied and duplicated and sent places. Different things there. Also, Elicrium, Romans 15, 19. We got some details. In the book of Romans, fifteen nineteen, we have details that could have been included in Acts 20 and verse 2, but they weren't. This is part of those districts, those districts around Macedonia. And so um, he talks about what he's going to boast in and... Um, as a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, it says in verse 16, ministering as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 18, I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. So if I have to boast, it's not great as is, is, is Paul, great things Paul has done. It's great as the Lord and, and great things the Lord has done through Paul, through him and in spite of him. Uh, and, and that should be our pattern as well. What Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. And we know that there was a great response in Asia. The whole province had heard the gospel, had heard the word of the Lord through Paul in Asia. There was a tremendous response there. And that continued. In Macedonia, it continued. In those districts, it continued. There was a great Gentile response and Luke doesn't record the response. He just said that he passed through, he gave much exhortation, and he came to Greece. Okay? And he spent three months in Greece. All right. And you'll notice, uh, uh, obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. So they responded to the teaching, and then they themselves started making application. In the, how long does that take? In the power of signs and wonders... In the power of the Spirit, this is the temporary giftedness of miracles and healing and prophecy and tongues and all of the sign gifts that are the mark of a true apostle. This was clearly an apostolic ministry and, and there is great fruit that's being born. So that from Jerusalem and roundabout as far as Elycrium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now this is what he admits to in Romans written from Corinth on this third missionary journey. And so Luke could have recorded it, but he did not record it. So again, if we were to, um, and it's off this map, Elycrium, if you travel west from the uh, Macedonian region here and come over here to this Adriatic coast, uh, northwest of Macedonia, so you're right across the Aegean, or the Adriatic, you're right across the Adriatic from Italy, that's Elycrium, all right? Sometimes called Dalmatia. That's the Dalmatian region. I had a spotted dog joke Wednesday night. I forget. It was kind of corny and only one person got it anyway, so who cares? But the, uh, the region of Elycrium up there, that uh, Luke doesn't talk about it. Luke omits it, but Paul admitted it. And that's, uh, that's uh, a detail there that we realize. And, and so maybe I'm spending weeks and weeks to, uh, to build this case, but when it comes right down to it, when we're done with this study, we're going to find dozens, dozens of things that, Paul, that, that Luke failed to mention. And we're going to be fine and dandy. We're going to be happy with it. We're not going to grumble. We're not going to complain. We're going to be comfortable with it. And then we'll be equipped to move on to the prison epistles. And as we move on to the prison epistles and we start to consider the, uh, the location of that imprisonment, uh, we'll discuss the traditional Roman imprisonment. We'll discuss the traditional alternative Caesarean imprisonment and, and all of the books and articles and, and arguments that have been made back and forth between a Roman imprisonment and a Caesarean imprisonment. Which one is more likely than the other for the writing of Philippians, the writing of Ephesians, the writing of Colossians? Um, but then we're also going to realize, you know what? There's more options than just, than just those two. There's also an Ephesians imprisonment. And the Ephesus imprisonment, I think, is, has the, the, the most weight behind it. It has the most to commend itself to the, to the authorship of Philippians, Colossians, Ephesians, and Philemon. All right? And the biggest objection, the one that the, the monster hang-up that, that most people just can't get over, they dismiss it out of hand. They say, sorry, 
But Luke never records an imprisonment in Ephesus. And because of that, they, they write it off and say, no, we, we're limited to considering either Rome or, or, uh, or Caesarea. And, and, and they, they limit themselves. And I think it's, it's improper to do so. And, and you will all agree with me by the time we finish this study. And we will, uh, I think, comprehensively, because it's not just me, it's Scripture, Paul himself, who says many imprisonments, imprisonments plural, and far more imprisonments than any other apostle you could shake a stick at, okay? He says far more imprisonments, and that's got to be more than two, all right? And when he said far more imprisonments, guess what? Neither the Caesarean nor the Roman had ever happened yet. He made that statement prior to Caesarea and Rome. And so when he says far more imprisonments, if, if we limit ourselves to what Luke talks about, then all we got to work with is, uh, is an overnight stay in Philippi where the Philippian jailer got saved that next morning. Okay, Because that's the only imprisonment that single night in, in Philippi that Luke records in the book of Acts until you get to Caesarea and then Rome. So that's why I'm taking the time to do this. We have a single verse to deal with everything that happened there, including Amphipolis, Apollonia, Berea, and then this Elycrium region here, and uh, which I think does represent the, the furthest extent. When you read that again in, in Romans 15, he says, from Jerusalem around about as far as Elycrium. And I think he's giving the, the, the maximum geographic extent of where he's traveled. See, it's like a Dan to Beersheba statement of, of de- describing the, the, the territory of Israel. So from Jerusalem to Elycrium, Elycrium represents the farthest he's been in, uh, in preaching Christ. But it's not described in, uh, in Acts 20. All it says is he went through those districts, giving them much exhortation, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months. Wow, there must have been a lot that happened there, like maybe writing Romans, <laughs> okay? Luke doesn't talk about that. There he spent three months. Also, by the way, in Macedonia is when Paul finished the composition of 2 Corinthians. He finished the writing of 2 Corinthians because he says, I am on the verge of arriving there, and when I get there, and it's my third time getting there, and when I get there, uh, we're dealing with the problems that have to be dealt with. Because everything will have been confirmed by two and three witnesses. <laughs> he says, I was there first of all in Acts 18, I was there secondly in a, in a sorrowful visit, and I'm about to arrive on my third visit, and on the third vis- visit, we're done. The witnesses are done, and judgment is coming. He's going to remove the troublemakers. He's going to, he's going to exercise his apostolic authority and set things right in, uh, in Corinth. And so when, uh, as you read through 2 Corinthians, and we did this 2 Corinthians study not long ago, you'll recall that when he finally came face-to-face with, with Titus in Macedonia, boy, was he relieved. It was a huge weight off his, his soul. He was overjoyed. He, not only was he overjoyed, but he was overjoyed the fact that it was going to be pleasant when he arrived in Corinth, that uh, they had repented, that they had already taken care of business themselves, and that he was going to be able to come to them in joy. He was going to have fellowship when he got there, see, and all those things. So it's a, it's a Luke mission here. Paul's writing of 2 Corinthians from Macedonia on the way to his third visit to Corinth along with every mention of Titus. Nine times in Second Corinthians, not once in the book of Acts. Right, let me blank that out for the moment. All right, so verse 3 then. So he comes to Greece. And if he comes to Greece, we're talking about the lower region, the, Achaean, the, pro, the Roman province of Achaia. And we're talking about Athens again, where, Mar, where he preached his Mars Hill sermon, or Corinth, maybe Sancria. We know there was a church there with a deaconess. so there he spent three months and when a plot was formed against him by the jews as he was about to set sail for syria he decided to return through macedonia wow so in verse two we find that he made it to greece spent three months there but in verse three he's already leaving (laughs) he's already leaving and his plan to leave was to get on a boat and sail to to um, Syria, but then even that plan got changed because of these plots. Well, what were these plots? A plot was formed against him, okay, by the Jews, all right. 
So he's about to set sail for Syria. All right. So instead, he fakes them out. He doesn't get on the boat. He uh, gets a couple others to get on the boat. And it's interesting. So he was accompanied by Sopater of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and by Aristarchus, and uh, Secundus of of the Thessalonians, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and Tychicus, and Trophimus of Asia. And these had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And so here's what happens. He sends a team on ahead while he himself doesn't get on the boat. He himself walks back up north to uh, Macedonia and then works his way back around. Notice the we shows up again. These had gone ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. And so, uh, you know, color that us yellow. We, starting in verse 5, we're back to Luke joining the uh, group again. Paul uh, threw him off the track but not getting on that boat. Instead, he marches back up probably to Philippi, grabs Luke, and then crosses over to Troas where uh, the rest of his team is assembled and, uh, and waiting. All right. So as we're dealing with this, um, I think what we've seen so far there in 2 Corinthians 2 and in Romans 15 We've had details related to Troas, details related to Elycrium. We've had uh, aspects of, of his uh, unsettled thinking, the uh, struggles that he had with respect to Titus, the writing of 2 Corinthians, the writing of Romans. These details jump out at us. So we, I think where we get the, the, the biggest bang here, really the biggest impact comes in 2 Corinthians. We have a hardship reference in chapter 1. We have a persecution catalog in chapter 11. And these these aspects, I think, um, they tell us more about that three years in Ephesus than anything in in the book of Acts. So let's let's look at 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. Second Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 11. All right. <clears throat> and first of all, we have seven verses of comfort, right? Seven verses of paraklesis and parakaleo and all the comfort. It's, you could think of this as the book of comfort, and it starts off right here in chapter 1. And here's Paul writing about comfort immediately after the three years he spent in Ephesus. Immediately after everything he went through. And so you realize the, the, um, the, the tremendous affliction that's going to be described here. So, um, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction that we will be able to comfort those who are in affliction with any comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Okay? And this is, this is the, the, the prime focus that he has leaving Ephesus on this third missionary journey. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. And so in these details, you think, well, is he just speaking in general? Or does he have some recent background that he wants to also include? And that's what happens here. But he's inviting the Corinthians to join him in this respect. All right. Um, Verse 6 says, If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. So don't get all gloomy if God puts you through tough stuff. Thank him for it. Because he will provide you the comfort in that, and then you will be equipped to bless others. And the more that you get hit with it, man, God's really going to use you. Isn't that great? Think about the fruit you're going to bear when you help a brother, when you help a sister get through what they think they can't get through. And you come alongside and say, oh yeah, you can. You can because the Lord's working in this. Because the Lord worked in us. And let me tell you how faithful the Lord is. Let me tell you what he brought me through. And this is how uh, the body of Christ is designed. It's effective. Verse 6 It is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. 
And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers, and this is fellowship. This is fellowship. Sharers, right? It's not sitting around eating food, talking politics, or talking football, or whatever else. You are sharers in our sufferings, so that you are also sharers of our comfort. And we get to wrestle together in prayer through all the sufferings. We get to wrestle together with prayer through the answers to those prayers. We get to wrestle together with prayer in the comfort that then comes. All right, great essay. Thank you, Paul. Appreciate it. Good preaching. But then he gets personal. Starting in verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren. Ignorance of this is problematic. Why? (laughs) Well, come on, doctrine of privacy, it's not their business. That's between me and the Lord. They don't need to know what I went through. Yeah, they do. In fact, they must know what you went through. If you fail to detail what you went through, you're diminishing their capacity, their capacity to endure what they've got coming up. We do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia. All right, pinpoint it. This is, Ephesus was the capital of Asia. This is the three years that he spent there. This is a, a list of details. This is, this is a description this is a description of the, it's their hardship references that we really don't have clues of if all we're doing is reading Acts 18 and Acts 19. The, heart, the afflictions which came to us in Asia that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. If the afflictions have reached the point that you don't think you're going to live anymore, that's that's serious and acts 19 does not reveal that not in the three months in the synagogue the two years in the school of tyrannus the little while after that nothing in there gave us a clue that paul was on the verge of death and yet this passage says he was despairing even of life that sounds kind of like philippians doesn't it doesn't know whether to live or to die notice He says, indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. You know, even before the court can hand down a sentence, you and I get pretty good at convincing ourselves of what's going to happen. Okay? Paul had the sentence of death already inside himself. He'd made up his mind. He was convinced. Paul knew for a fact how it was going to turn out. See, I do the same thing. I don't know, maybe others here too as well. I'm the biggest pessimist in this church, right? And so this is how you do it. You just work yourself up. You think, I'm talking about carnality now, all right? You think (laughs) that what is possibly the worst thing that could possibly happen, and then you convince yourself that's what's going to happen. And then when something less bad than that actually does happen, then you can think, hey, that wasn't quite so bad. (laughs) Wow, I was expecting a lot worse than that. And so you kind of, like reverse psychology you 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 prep yourself ahead of time for something even worse than what it what you ended up with all right but notice we had the sentence of death within ourselves but it goes on to say so that we would not trust in ourselves but in god who raises the dead and you know what's neat is when you get done with all the the carnality pessimism you then stop to take the time to confess get back in fellowship start thinking divine viewpoint start cycling promises start cycling truth and then you're able to claim to say you know what guess what even if i am killed god can take care of that (laughs) you know he can restore me to life i think he did so on one previous uh, occasion anyway when he was stoned and, and dragged out of the city as if dead and if he's going to bring me back, he'll bring me back. You know, how many times did Paul go to heaven? You know, he, the first time he came back with a thorn in the flesh. And then the second time he was stoned and, and, and killed and then brought back to life. And now he's sitting in prison thinking I may get executed. Well, that's all right. God can send me back. Notice. Uh, so tr- faith, faith in God who raises the dead. Same kind of faith Abraham had. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son with faith in God that God is able to bring Isaac back from the dead. Verse 10, who delivered us, past tense, who delivered us from so great a peril of death. Well, what was that? Acts 19 doesn't talk about it. Three months in the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews, two years in the school of Tyrannus, reasoning. 
And there was great uh, miracles done. There were a great response. They were burning witchcraft books. They were, uh, they were carrying handkerchiefs. Nothing in there in chapter 19 told us that Paul was on the verge of death. But it happened repeatedly by his own admission here in, in chapter 1 and then the catalog that we get to in chapter 11. So he delivered us from so great a peril of death. Was that, the, was that the occasion when Priscilla and Aquila risked their necks to save his? Well, that was a clue we saw last week in the reference from Romans 16 when he was greeting Priscilla and Aquila who had risked their necks to save his life. It goes on. He, past tense, delivered us. He will deliver us on whom we have set our hope. Because he already did, he's going to do so again, and he's going to do so again and again. And he will yet deliver us. (laughs) So there's the past, there's the present, and there's the future. He delivered us, he will deliver us, on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us. God keeps delivering again and again and again and again. And ultimately, when he takes us to be with Jesus Christ for all eternity. Because one of these times, Paul's going to die and stay dead. Okay, And then he'll enjoy uh, his reward. He will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice though, you also joining in helping us through your prayers. And we realize that it not only is there stuff to be thankful for with what he's already survived, but there's ongoing prayer requests for what he's looking forward to now. What he's going through now and presently, he'll need additional salvation. And they get to join him. They get to join him as prayer intercessors. They become prayer partakers. So that thanks may be given by many persons. See what happens there? If you don't allow these requests to be multiplied, then you don't allow the thanksgiving to be multiplied. If we want maximum number of people to give the hallelujah when the prayer gets answered, and if we want the maximum thanksgiving after the fact, then the best way to do that is to get maximum number of believers praying ahead of time, during the testing, during the affliction, so that they're already partakers in the suffering. They can then be partakers in the comfort. They can be partakers in the thanksgiving, partakers in the praise. See, and this is what gets diminished. And I remember preaching this, and maybe it just kind of rolled off when we were in 2 Corinthians. But this passage, I think, devastates what too many believers do when they misapply and they pervert and twist the doctrine of privacy. See, it's a legitimate doctrine. But when it's twisted and perverted, and when it's turned from privacy to secrecy, (laughs) and we don't allow our brothers and sisters to pray for us when we need it, then we diminish the praise and thanksgiving afterwards. And we come up to him after the fact and say, hey, I want to share with you a great answer to prayer. All right, you know. And I'm, I'm, if I'm completely oblivious to it, it breaks my heart. I mean, I'm still happy to hear it. And I'll, I'll share on a limited extent, oh, wow. Yeah, he, he rescued you, didn't he? Okay. So on a limited basis, I can share that rescue celebration. But how much more would I have been thrilled had I been engaged earlier? Had I been engaged in prayer all throughout? See, then, man, then it really explodes because I've already been a partaker. I've already joined with them. I've already helped. You also joining in helping us. You see that? It's called help in verse 11. How many believers think that prayer isn't helping? Isn't that sad? Absolutely, it's sad. It's tragic. It's pathetic. And sometimes it angers me when, when, I, when somebody that should know better says, well, sorry, I can't help you, but I'll, I'll pray. What? That is help. That's the best help of all. Anything else is just gravy on top of that. Absolutely, I want you to pray. That is the help. You are moving on the omnipotent hand of God. How much more help could anybody ask for? You also joining in helping us through your prayers. So that thanks may be given by the many persons on our behalf for the favor as grace bestowed on us through the many. 
through the many. And he realized if it comes through something, that's the vehicle that got it there. That's the vehicle that made it happen. Through the prayers of many. Maybe the deliverance would not have been there without the prayers of the many. See, what is the fervent, effectual prayer anyway? If it's effectual, it means it's doing something. It means it accomplishes something. It achieves something. And if it's missing, what gets achieved? These things, I think, are, are significant. The Asian hardship references. Dying daily. is a great backdrop for Philippians chapter 1. <laughs> okay? It's a great backdrop for the entire book of Philippians. Far more so than Acts 28, in my view. We also have a persecution catalog given in chapter 11. A persecution catalog. I've cited it repeatedly in recent classes. This is our first time to literally turn here and look at it. But in his defense here, he's going to get a little foolish with him for a while just to prove his point and make it so undeniable that, uh, that, that they can't deny it. And so uh, he doesn't want to be seen as foolish, but he'll just go ahead and do what they do. If, you know, they, they were very fond of boasting. So he says, okay, I'll play your game. <laughs> I'll boast. I can boast too. He says uh, in verse 19, you being so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. You tolerate it if anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say, I've been weak and we've been weak in comparison. <laughs> you know? Abusive minister. Are you kidding me? You talk about some of these televangelists, some of these hucksters. Man. And they are fleecing the flock and they're treating them like dirt and they're milking them for all the money in the world or they're just abusing them. It's horrible. And the people eat it up and go, yeah, that's great. You know, give me another one, as the case may be. So he says, to my shame, I must say we've been weak by comparison. In whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness, I am just as bold myself. And then, so he starts to lay out his credentials here. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Isn't that the same thing in three different ways? Are they <laughs> servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I am more so. Now, in far more labors. In far more labors. Now, normally we don't talk about that. We forget what lies behind. We're not going to just boast on what we've done right? We're not going to, we're not going to make a big deal of 5,244 Bible classes. Okay. You know, doesn't matter. That's between, you know, the Lord's got that handled, but if perhaps forced into it, and if perhaps it comes down to something, you know, you say what you say and there it goes. God's, God is in charge of all of it. Far more imprisonments, there it is. So how many is that? How many is far more? And by the way, it's not in my notes and I forgot all about it. I should have put it in there. Um, in chapter six, there's a mention of imprisonments, right? Chapter six and verse five, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger. Okay. And, in, and some people dismiss that as well. That's just hyperbole or whatever. No, I think it's, it's biography. I think that's Paul's background. He doesn't want the ministry to be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servant of God, servants of God in much endurance, afflictions, hardships, distresses, beatings, imprisonments, tumults, labor, sleeplessness, hunger. All of that was factual in Paul's missionary journeys. So add to your slide there, add 2 Corinthians 6, 5, because it's again, plural imprisonments. Here in 11.23, far more imprisonments. Not just plural, but far more plural. How many is that? How many is that? Because you can't count Caesarea and you can't count Rome. Those haven't happened yet. And so 
you know, for those scholars and commentary authors and blah, 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 um, that they want to limit their discussion of the, of the prison epistles to either Rome or Caesarea. And, and, and if, they, if they're not going to consider anything else, well, why not? The Scripture itself says we got many options to work with. <laughs> Far more imprisonments. I mean, who knows how many imprisonments? Do we start counting Damascus? Do we count Tarsus? Do we count how many more? Far more. There may have been three in, in Ephesus alone. There's an author named Duncan who wrote a book in 1929, um, Paul's Ephesian Ministry, and he, he, he estimates at least three imprisonments during the three years that he stayed in, in Ephesus, and maybe more. Maybe some shorter detentions, but at least three imprisonments of length, such as uh, it hampered Paul's travels and he had to send people places that he himself couldn't go. They had to send handkerchiefs places. He had to send for people to come visit him. Things of that nature. All right. Beaten, times without number. You know, if you've been beaten so many times you can't even remember them all, you can't even count them all, that's a lot of times. And how many are recorded in Acts? A small select number. Uh, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Not one of them is recorded in Acts. But five times it happened. Now in Corinth, they wanted it to happen, but the proconsul laughed them away from the Bema seat and said, go away. He says, this is ridiculous. You wonder, did it happen in Ephesus? Did it happen more than once in Ephesus? When a, uh, a friendlier proconsul was, was working hard to placate the Jews. Because remember, Paul's friends were the Asiarchs and the city clerk, not the proconsul. So five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. And each one of these is a Lucan omission. So there's five omissions right there. Three times I was beaten with, with rods. When did that happen? Once I was stoned. Now that one we know about. That one we know about. That one was recorded in the first missionary journey. Three times I was shipwrecked. There it is. Written before Acts 27. Written before the shipwreck on the way to Rome. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Wow. Did something swallow him like Jonah? Or I mean, what happened here? Okay, we don't know. Say thanks a lot, Luke. <laughs> okay. So, you know, I'm starting to think more in terms that, that Paul went on missionary journeys and uh, Luke went on omissionary journeys. <laughs> Recording all his omissions. Yes, sir. Uh-huh. It doesn't bother me at all. Yep, that's right. The Holy Spirit omitted these things. Yeah, everything I'm blaming Luke for, Holy Spirit omitted all these things as well. That's right. Because the Holy Spirit had a purpose for the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit had a purpose for all the Pauline epistles. And I think um, the question is, does that tell us about the relative importance of recording our sufferings? So recording... I think it is uh, significant that Paul mentions them reluctantly and he mentions them in passing and he re re mentions them to encourage others as to their faith, encourages them as an apostle. Luke's not an apostle. And I think in Luke's purposes in recording the origins of Christianity and the life and ministry of Christ and the life and it's not the acts of the apostles, it's the acts of a couple of apostles. <laughs> it's the acts of Peter in the early chapters and Paul in the later chapters. And, and really it's first and second Theophilus. It is it's Luke writing to a high Roman official explaining not only the origin of Christianity, but the nature of Christianity as something different than Judaism. And something that comes out of Judaism is a whole new creation. And something that is not a threat to Roman Empire, Roman governance. And so uh, it's, it's, a, it's an excellent uh, apologia, defense. It's an excellent uh, treatise on, on New Testament Christianity 
in such a way whereby recording all the sufferings would not would not be necessary to that objective to that to that purpose and so it doesn't bother me at all that that uh, this catalog of of sufferings is not in anywhere in uh, in in acts good question appreciate that if i can think of it there's a funny quote i think in the new american commentary one of those that he discusses you know if if luke's purpose was to catalog hardships uh, he, he failed terribly <laughs> you know? so clearly that was that was not his purpose yes sir Possibly, yeah. That's a possible thing, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's save some of these for Wednesday night. We can do more questions on Wednesday night and get on the microphone and, and handle that. Um, so, the Asian hardship reference in, first Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 1, the persecution catalog in 2 Corinthians 11. You're right. The, the fact that they're not so lockstep. The fact that they're not copying from one another and, and replicating these things um, is, is a good thing. Critics uh, will, would, would accuse you know, collusion or fraud or something of that nature. All right. Anyway, by the basis of this, though, understand all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Okay? And this is our privilege. It's a thrill. God is genius for writing this way. And so we don't fall into the trap of the critics and the Bible mockers and the God-haters, you know, whereby we, they find divergent accounts and they attack it as a contradiction or they attack it as, a, as, a, as proof of, of, of something. Actually, we thrive in that. We love divergent accounts because we harmonize those accounts. We never, ever, ever, ever... <laughs> fall into the either-or trap whereby we say, okay, this happened, this didn't happen, we accept this is true and this is not true. Okay? Don't ever go there. And if someone tries to take you there, laugh at them and say, no, God is the God of truth, nothing he wrote is false. So because everything is true, everything is true as he revealed it in each book of the Bible, we take all these details as true. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. That happened. But which time in Miletus? Yeah, we can work with that. We can find a lot of Miletus visits. And we might debate, you know, which one was the one that Trophimus got left sick at. Or when did he leave his cloak at Troas? Or when did, you know, the kid fall out the window and die? When did, you know, we, we, we have to harmonize, and it's our blessing to harmonize. It is absolutely our blessing to harmonize. And, and, and we're able to harmonize because... All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Being God-breathed, it cannot be a lie. It cannot be false. God is a God of truth. Being God-breathed means it's, it's reliable, and we can search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. We're commanded to search the Scriptures. We're commanded to rightly divide the word of truth. We have to compare Scripture to Scripture. And these things all have to come together. Here's something else. The reason, and i got one minute to explain this. Wow. Um, you and I are going to be blessed abundantly far beyond this immediate class, far beyond the prison epistles, far beyond... Think about it. Think about the role that Ephesus plays in so much of the New Testament. Okay? Because we have a description of Ephesus in 1 John. We have, we have uh, the, the, the writing of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John uh, in, in later decades... From the very same Ephesus, we're taking all this time to study in this, in this series. And then, of course, so there's 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and that, that have Ephesus connections. Of course, there's the book of Ephesians. There's 1st and 2nd Timothy. 1st and 2nd Timothy is Paul writing to Timothy where? In Ephesus. But it's Ephesus of a later decade than what we're studying in this series. It's not the Ephesus of the third missionary journey. Okay. And then, of course, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation, he's writing to seven churches. What's the first of those seven churches? Ephesus. But it's the Ephesus of an even later decade, in the 90s then, when the pastor there, not Timothy, but the pastor there left his first love. And we've got circumstances in Ephesus there. That, and so in comparing Scripture to Scripture, we have views of Ephesus in the, 
in the in the 40s in the 50s in the 60s in the in the uh, 80s and in the 90s possibly the 70s depends on where you date the 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 uh, first second third john okay and these things i think are are significant you know when paul moved his missionary headquarters from antioch to ephesus what was planted there was an amazing lampstand was an amazing um, training center what became a a focal point for new testament christianity i think it shaped the rest of the new testament in 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 a powerful powerful way and uh, this class is is going a long way to helping us to appreciate that and i'm thankful god's uh, opening that door Father, I thank you for this morning, and I thank you for the privilege we have to study these details, to see what's said, what's not said, to see what's said in one place and not somewhere else, and to put these things together, Father, um, being diligent to present ourselves approved. And we want, Father, we want Austin Bible Church to become this this locus, this focus, this lampstand, this, this um, center. And we are, Father, we're training pastors, we're training evangelists, we're training missionaries. Father, to become a center whereby um, your work is done uh, through Austin, through Texas, through the United States, and around the world. Father, it's a powerful, powerful thing. And you did it in Antioch, you did it in Ephesus, and uh, you're doing it here, Father. And I thank you for that. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen.